Hey, one more thing before you go. What if we as humanity are on a collision course with our own extinction? Is there a national and global mental health crisis that is not being addressed? Should we fear for our children and all future generations who may feel hopeless or resigned or simply don't know what to do to help create a more loving and sustainable world? Stay tuned. We're going to answer all these questions and more. My next guest and I are going to discuss this in depth. I'm your host, Michael R. Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Phyllis Lovett. She's a psychotherapist treating children, families, and couples, and individuals, adults, for 32 years. She's worked extensively with abuse and dysfunctional family dynamics. We're going to get along really well. Their aftermath and some of the most important elements for healing. Phyllis has published two books, A Light in the Darkness and Into the Fire, and presently working on a book that's coming out soon entitled America in Therapy. Phyllis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We're going to have a fantastic conversation today. I think that we have so many questions and uh, hopefully we could provide a little bit of insight and answers to some of those. Um, it kind of does scare me a little bit about uh, the statement that uh, we may be on a collision course to extinction. And, you know, when you look at the history within itself, uh, this seems like it somewhat follows along the same, uh, you know, that same path. But there's some distinct differences in where we're headed now. Yeah, and I think there's some distinct differences in why we're headed there. Um, because we have a lot to do with why we're facing the challenges and the threats to our existence that we face. So if we have a lot to do with creating it, um, my hope is that we can make a lot to do, take a lot to do to uncreate that and reverse courses. I agree with that. I hope that we as humanity and society can uh, at least start curbing that a little bit and change the direction of that scope because we all want to be here for ourselves. We want to be here for our children. We're going to be here for our grandchildren and, and on right. and on down the line. So right. we're, going to, we're going to get into that. But let's, let's kind of start at the beginning, if you can. Where'd sure. You grow Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Plainfield, New Jersey, um, in a kind of a suburban neighborhood. I had a family that was very focused on education. So I was very focused on education myself and really actually loved being a student. And then I was an English major. And, uh, but you know, I guess I'll backtrack because that's sort of how it looked on the outside. We lived in a suburban house in New Jersey and my father was a chemist and, you know, it all looked pretty good, but uh, there was something going on inside that house behind closed doors that I only began to remember much later in my adulthood that was not good. And so there was there was some distinct trauma in my childhood that really colored my life um, and made me feel very other, very alone, very different. Um, and I had some unusual experience as a child that I had no real words for because there was nothing in the language of either my family or my community or my culture that spoke of the things that I experienced. But I had very distinct out-of-body experiences as a little girl that were very pleasant. I would float up on the ceiling in my bedroom at night when I was sort of like before bed in the dark. 
um, or in the partial dark because I was afraid of the dark. So I always had a light on, but I would float up on the ceiling and I didn't want to come back down. And I was always disappointed when I came back down because it was the most pleasant, beautiful experience. Um, and I had another kind of out of body experience that I probably can't really describe here, but it was more like being, it isn't this, but the only way I can say it is more like being one cell inside my body and feeling the whole universe and cosmos around me, like being a speck in the cosmos that was also incredibly beautiful experience and and again, one that I didn't want to have end. So I had these unusual experiences growing up that I had no place for and really never talked about or even thought about until later. Um, I left home, I went to college, and I went to college in the late 60s. And so I was in that era when a lot of spiritual teachers were coming to the United States. And I ended up being in a Gurdjieff group, which was a spiritual group run by a man who had been a student of Gurdjieff. I don't know how well Gurdjieff is known, but he was an Eastern mystic who um, started an institute in France, and then some of his followers came to America. And I was a student of one of his followers, and I was in that group for several years. And um, gosh, I had, um, you know, it, it's, I, I guess the short version would be to say that there was an extreme juxtaposition between kind of this depressed, quiet, introverted self that I presented to the world and someone who periodically would connect to these amazing experiences that were otherworldly. And many of those experiences I began to have in nature um, where I would just connect to the the life of the earth the life force of the earth and her ecstatic beauty and again all of these experiences would end quickly and then i would be back left with myself and i'll tell you one that really shaped my life and my spiritual journey in many ways i was in the mojave desert in arizona when i was about 20 and i felt for the first time in my life that i was home i just had a walking, talking, incredible relationship with the desert uh, landscape, actually. And I did not want to leave. I was in the middle of college, or I'm not sure how old I was, but I was had one more year of college. And um, I was supposed to go back to Brooklyn. And I sat on a little stone in the desert, and I asked God if I could stay. And I, and I, and this is sort of the beginning of part of my spiritual journey, is that I have a very verbal relationship with a higher consciousness where I really hear very distinct messages that are not unclear. And that was one of the first ones. And the message was, no, you cannot stay here. Um, I pictured myself being a desert hermit. I just wanted to live on the desert and live out my life there and avoid people, <laughs> basically. Um, and the message was, no, you cannot stay here. You have to go back and work it out with people. And I knew the truth of that somewhere inside of me. It resonated very deeply. I went back. I was, and it was after that that I joined this Gurdjieff group. And I met my first husband and had three children. Um, but I'm going to let you interrupt me because I'm kind of going on. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's okay. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna really kind of delve into a little bit of that ourselves. 
I find it interesting because I grew up in a dysfunctional family myself. And, you know, your comments earlier in regard to um, the out-of-body experience, I think, is some of us that have experienced uh, uh, any type of situation like that, home situation like that, you know, it gives us an escape. And I find it interesting that you, that, that happened to you because it gave you the opportunity to kind of set yourself outside of that environment for a little bit. And I understand why you didn't want to come back into that, you know, because it obviously it, it, you know, our experiences, as you know, define us as we get older and what we bring forward. It's a choice that we have to make as to whether or not we're going to bring forward something that we can then turn into a positive and help other people or whether or not we allow it to take us down a darker path. That's right. With regard to that, um, I think what you what you've been able to do, at least from from the stuff that I have learned about you prior to the interview and then in in just now, is that you went on a spiritual type journey that allowed you to kind of connect with the universe. And I think we all are connected to the universe. Yes. And we don't always open our eyes, our heart, and our ears or our soul to that. And you know, a lot of it deals with our circumstances and where we have come from and why those things get blocked. That's right. Um, what, what, I know you, 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 you went to university, you said you had a year left. What did you study when you were there? I mean, I know that you're a psychotherapist, so what yeah. brought you to wanting to be a psychotherapist? Yeah, well, I was an English major in college and I didn't go on to graduate school right away. I joined the Skirjeev group and moved into, it was kind of a community. I mean, we lived in our own houses. It wasn't a commune, but it was a spiritual community. And I had, I got married and had my three children there. And when um, when I had my third child, I had decided I was going to go back to graduate school. And I had um, I had a I really had a powerful experience there. I you know I really never totally jived with the spiritual practice of that group. Um, not that it wasn't totally valid and wonderful for many people, but for me, it was kind of a little bit intellectual. And I'm, while I have a strong intellectual bent, I'm a very emotional person and it didn't speak to the emotional part of me. And um, I had an experience one day where I was talking with another man in the group and he was telling me about, you know, all his spiritual practices and how excited he was about, you know, this, that, this, that, and the other. And, um, well, he had moved on to another spiritual teacher. So he had learned on, moved on to an Indian guru and he was learning Sanskrit and he was just ecstatic about learning Sanskrit. And I looked at him and I had this profound moment and it was really about me, but I, I had the moment in terms of him, but I knew it was about me. I looked at him and I thought, he just wants God to love him. That's what he wants. And I thought, that's me. I'm doing all this spiritual practice because I want to be loved by God. But really, I want to be loved by people. I want to love people. I want to be loved by people. And I was in a very unhappy marriage and um, very unhappy and um, was recreating some of the stress that I had had as a, as a child in that marriage, which many people do. And I went to therapy. Um, it was sort of a time when that was coming on the scene. And I thought, you know, um, I don't think this the spiritual practice that I'm in can answer the questions that I have about the pain that I carry. So I went to therapy. And out of that, I decided to become a psychotherapist myself. That's the you know, short the, answer. Well, I mean, well, yeah, and that's a very interesting <laughs> answer. I, You know, I find that 
that those of us that have come in, I don't know the exact, you know, what your dysfunctional family environment was. I grew up with two alcoholic parents, and, and there was some intergenerational trauma along with that because there were alcoholics prior to that in other members of the families that went back generations, and they, they brought that forward. Mm -hmm. From my mm -hmm. perspective, you know, I chose a path of, that's why I got into law enforcement, actually, because I felt that I could contribute back to society from that perspective in a protect and serve type atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, you know, it was born out of growing up in that environment, in a domestic violence environment, in the, the alcoholic uh -huh. environment and things like that. So from that perspective, um, I, I know that you, you well, let, let me, let me say this. When I first went to college and while I was going to college for criminal justice, you know, they had a program in there to become an uh, drug and alcohol abuse counselor. And I literally started to do that. I went through everything except for the internship. Once I started getting to the internship, wow. I sat there for a little bit and I went through, through these, these sessions that I was supposed to go through on the internship and, and practical. And, you know, I kind of thought, you know, I don't want to relive this every day, you know, yeah. I, and not being selfish, you know, I'll, I'll put that out there. It wasn't being selfish, but it was a situation that the more and more I heard these people talk about these things in bringing them out and that me, me as an individual that was supposed to help them through that, I kept reliving my own childhood. And I thought, you know, I don't want to do this from that atmosphere. So I kind of stopped it at that point. And then I put all mm -hmm. of my energy into law enforcement and then doing it from that perspective. I was a DUI, I had a DUI task force and you know, I worked domestic violence task force, a multi-agency domestic wow. violence task force. So, you know, we, we had, not that any domestic violence is good, but we worked the worst of the worst cases. Mm. And, you know, mm. it, it was one of those situations that I was able to contribute back from that perspective. So I know that you, you, um, you treat children's and families and couples and individuals uh, that dealt with, and I just have to look at my notes here really quick, um, uh, with a lot of dysfunction and in, in from, from that perspective, were, were you able to work through, is that how you were able to work through a lot of, of what you had gone through was to be able to help other people from that perspective? You know, it was two things. It was partly that um, the issue in my family was sexual abuse and which, you know, I, I would just want to say to anyone listening, um, like any abuse is devastating to your psyche. And especially if you don't remember, you don't even know what devastated you. And uh, part of my part of my compassion that has grown, you know, exponentially over the years of working with people, because all abuse leaves a horrible mark on a person. It doesn't really matter what the violation is in a way, because when we're violated by other human beings, and especially people that we're taught to love or depend on or hope we can love and depend on, um, there's just really no words to say what the, the the devastating imprint that's left on your psyche and it's different for different people and it manifests in different ways. For me, it manifested, like I said, in, in a lot of introversion and um, turning to actually to writing. I started writing when, poetry when I was a little girl. Um, but in but in any case, in answer to your question, yes, I think that what I began to uncover informed 
a lot of what I did as a therapist. And it, I think it helped create a great sensitivity to what the internal dynamics are that people experience, what the, in, the dynamics are in families that create these experiences and perpetuate them, and also the lasting effect. So that, um, and then working with many, many people over the years with, uh, the abuse in our country is actually epidemic, I believe, on the individual level. The stories that I've heard over the years from people, you know, holding down jobs and getting up and feeding their children in the morning and doing their best to deal with anxiety or obsessiveness or depression or addiction, the level of violence and abuse or emotional abuse that people have sustained and still have survived is quite epidemic in our country. And I don't know if we all know that, that we're so taught to look good and, you know, make it that a lot of that is hidden. And so the psychotherapeutic environment creates a private, safe place to let that out and process it. And yes, it was extremely healing for me to work with many people over the years, as well as do years and years of my own work as a client. You know, it's interesting because as working on the job, in especially in the domestic violence arena, as long as I had it, I agree with you. It is an epidemic, and is a lot more prevalent than what people really kind of see. Um, right. You know, you think everything is normal, and it, and as as you know, and I'm just educating others that are listening and watching. The fact is, is that it goes across society and culture norms. Absolutely. So you could be rich, you could be poor. You could be middle class, you could be black, you could be white, you could be Asian, you could be indigenous, whatever. It, right. it does not have specifics to it. It, it no. is across the board in that it is in all aspects of life. But yes. nobody, you know, your next door neighbor doesn't always know what goes on behind closed doors. And, and unfortunately, that creates, as we both know, that creates an intergenerational trauma that carries forward in many, many, many That's cases. Right. But luckily, there's That's people right. like you that help others and individuals understand that that intergenerational trauma can stop. And right. that there are opportunities both spiritually and through other different right. health and modalities that you can work through to be able to present an opportunity for a positive movement forward in right. life and to be able to understand what where, where you came from, where you're at right now, and how you can change that to improve your life. So I, I appreciate what you've been through. I know that obviously, you know, all of our journeys, we all walk a journey. You know, sometimes we're walking the same path. Sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, we, we can walk different paths, but we, we have similarities in our paths that allow us yeah. to understand what somebody else is going through. We can empathize and we can, we can co-join that path based upon those similarities. And I think that we all need each other. I think earlier when we were talking about the connection with right. nature and the connection with the universe, and that we all are connected, it gives us the opportunity to to kind of look around and say, well, you know, maybe I need to open my eyes a little bit and open my heart a little bit and you know, show some compassion and some empathy mm -hmm. for those around me because you know, I've walked that path. It just it may have been a little different than yours, but we've walked that path. Right. Um, and so many people. Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. Go ahead. No. no, I was just going to say, we don't know what's inside the next person. We don't know what's inside their rage. We don't know what's inside their, you know, dysfunctional behavior with their children. We don't know. And we're, 
I think we're trained. I certainly was trained. And I think societally we're trained to so quickly judge each other and make each other wrong and bad um, when there's just so much pain running the show. Um, And as a therapist, you cannot help but see that. You cannot help but see how much pain is running the show for so many people. And it really does bring enormous compassion. And if there's anything that heals besides, you know, certain psychotherapeutic techniques that are just wonderful. Um, but if there's anything that heals, that heals, it's compassion and understanding from another human being. Because our hurt is from other human beings. And my belief as a psychotherapist is that it needs to be healed by other human beings or with other human beings. I agree with that. And I think that, I mean, I, in my notes here, I have that you um, you also had uh, used, or you have deep connection to nature and art. Um, you know, I, it's interesting. <laughs> when I was going through a uh, university to get my master's degree, I have a master's in interdisciplinary studies with a focus on performance, digital media, and art. Wow. And wow. I created a documentary actually was my, you know, my thesis project, my capstone. And it, it was we utilized creative arts in in the area mm. of healing. We used right. dance and music and art, um, and showed people how you can use those modalities to help you to heal with right. music and art and dance and drama and things like that. And I felt it was satisfying to me to be able to connect the creative part of our lives that we all yearn for, that sometimes is suppressed because of our environment. Yes or yes. a society or, or, or within our culture, that we can use those modalities, even as simple as that, to help us overcome those things that we've, we have an adverse effect on our lives. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I think that we all have the opportunity. It just, we just have to open our eyes or ask, reach out yeah. and, and, and ask. Um, so what, I know that you said that you, you love to write, you wrote poetry to help you get through some of this. And um, had you always wanted to be an author? You know, I always wanted to write. I really didn't know when I was young, and I was even aware of this. Like, I don't know what I want to write. I just know I want to write. And the reason why that happened for me was I had this impulse to write a poem when I was, I think I was about 13. And I don't even have the poem anymore. But what I what happened for me was I wrote that poem, and it was the first real experience that I had in my life of connecting to myself, like emotionally, spiritually, I don't know what the words are, because it was like a a consciousness experience of connecting to my true self. And so and it was so profound, and so out of the ordinary of the rest of my existence. And I was 13, you know, I didn't know anything. (laughs) And my parents didn't talk about anything, you know, about growing up or your real self or anything like that. That just wasn't part of the world I lived in. but it made such an impression on me that I just wanted to continue to write poetry. I really was very seldom able to recreate that experience in its original form, but I just kept writing. I wrote little short vignettes about my life. And then when I was in my early twenties, I wrote um, and illustrated some little children's books that were actually really about me and they were for me and I still have them. And I read them to my kids and, They've read them to their kids a little bit, um, and they were just very, very meaningful. And then I just began to be a journal writer, and I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and that was, that really was my access to my inner world that I was able to 
to do through that creative project. And then I, I later began to paint in watercolors and that was a very happy experience for me. And I would say healing just because it was so joyous. So I totally believe in, you know, fostering um, healing through any creative expression at all. Yeah, I think it's a benefit. I, I you know, it, it's interesting the way it evolves and the way it, it brings things out within us, just like music. That's right. You know, I, I found that music is something that, you know, we all remember music. And I mean, the, <laughs> the yeah. not so primetime singers where you, you know, you, you sing along and you get some, most of the right. words or some of the right. words. <laughs> right, right. But it always brings like a memory, you know, and that memory can be positive or unfortunately sometimes it can be negative. But it, but typically, you know, even dementia patients are, my wife's father, um, he had Lewy body dementia. And um, it was interesting enough as he progressed in the disease and he started forgetting things, he always remembered music. Oh, interesting. You know, music always, yeah. he still remembered that. He still, he could a smile on his face when certain songs came on and yeah. things like that. So we would use music to help soothe him because in, in Lewy body dementia, sometimes they have, they have an anger, they have outburst mm -hmm. and things like this. And we turn mm -hmm. music on and that would soothe the, the old cliche, mm -hmm. soothe the beast. You know, mm -hmm. it, it really would kind of start to soothe him a little bit and he'd relax and, and he'd smile a little bit and kind of think, oh yeah, I wow. recognize that song kind of a thing. So I think that's something that we can all kind of take a look at in regard to whatever our path or journey is. Definitely. Without and, and it can be healing. <clears throat> you don't have to have a therapist. You don't. I mean, it's no. wonderful to have help. It's wonderful to have people who know the inside, you know, experience of what you've gone through, but, but creative expression can be inordinately healing. I, I agree with that. I, I, I think that's it. It is, well, even art. It, and don't be afraid to paint. It, it, you know, it, yeah. What you put on a canvas, the only person that, 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 that you are trying to impress is yourself. Right. You, you know what I mean? It, it's, don't, mm -hmm. there are people self-conscious. Well, I don't want somebody else to see this. This looks like a fifth grader did it or a third grader did it. But it doesn't matter because it's for you. That's it's, right. You know, it's for you. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so I know that you make a comment um, in, in some notes that I had gotten from you, and which I, I'm really interested in delving into this a little bit deeper, if you don't mind. You say, no. we as humanity are on a collision course with our own extinction. Um, yeah. We can see that with, a, with politics and with climate and with, you know, with um, basic common humanity, I think. People have lost compassion, so they've lost humanity, they've lost intelligence, they've lost the yeah. ability to recognize others as human beings. Right. From my perspective, I, I, you know, as a trained observer, as a human being, I have recognized this and seen this. So can we delve a little deeper into, into you know, how, how you see it and in, in yeah. the direction that you see and where, where we have, where the foundation of that might be? Yeah, I mean, I see it, and this is part of the reason why I wrote my latest book, America in Therapy, because I see it from more than one perspective within the world of psychology. And those two perspectives are the microcosm and the macrocosm, because I'm, it's so, I've been so up close and personal with the individual, both in my own healing journey and in with all the people yeah. that I've worked with, all the families and individuals and children that I've worked with, that I see the lasting effects of trauma at human hands. You know, not everybody goes out and kills other people or robs a bank or molests children. Not everybody does that, even if terrible things have happened to them. But some people do. 
and many people do. And we see an escalation in our society of just the mass shootings that have been happening, you know, over the last couple of years that are, are escalating every day. Practically you read something. And I know there have been more mass shootings in the United States since January 1st than there are days in the year. Hundred ninety nine. That that's, that is horrifying. So on that level, you know, I think just from ordinary self-preservation, we all wish that the gun had been taken out of that person's hand before they entered an elementary school or a theater or the different venues that they've gone, the mall, which was a, a recent one. We wish the gun had been taken out of their hands. We wish that someone had seen the call for help that was inherent in um, either their condition, maybe it was they were being bullied or they were being molested or they were being physically abused or they were being racially targeted in their community um, or they were disabled and they were being made fun of. Whatever the traumas are, and some people have many of those traumas piled together, um, we all wish that somebody had seen the signs and taken the gun, get, gotten that person help before anyone was injured or killed. And I see our country the same way. And actually what I'm talking about is pretty global, but I only talk about America because I live here and this is the country that I'm familiar with. Um, on the biggest scale, so we could say that the mass shooter is suffering from a severe state of mental disturbance, mental and emotional disturbance, um, pain, anger, whatever underlies the impulse to go out and kill people that you don't even know has to be pretty severe. And yet there's this gap between what we can understand on the individual level and what we see taking place. And it's been taking place forever. This isn't anything new. Um, on the national and international level that we still are investing in solving our problems with one another, with different people within our country, um, economic groups, racial groups, however we look at the differences that we tend to invest in keeping alive rather than resolving. Um, we still tend to look at violence and murder and incarceration as the main ways to solve our problems. And, um, and we know better. We know better in the world of psychology. There are millions of people in this country today who know better, who work with mediation skills, who work with families to help um, troubled families rather than incarcerate them, help them restore them to health and safety with their children and their spouses. And yet on a national level, we're still investing millions and billions of dollars in nuclear weapons and chemical additives and all the ways that could actually lead to our own extinction. And this is a sign of mental illness in our country on a national level. Um, and so that's, that's how I see that the real problem facing us, the real missing piece in our national agenda, in um, the media's conversations, which is so influential, is our is our mental health, and not our mental health from the point of view of who are the crazies out there, but how are we affecting the mental health of every single person in this country by the policies that we enact, by the role models that our people our leaders and people in the positions of highest power in our government and powerful institutions are exhibiting for the young people of this world that it's okay 
that it's okay to shout down your opponent in Congress or call them names or put horrible things about them online um, for everyone to read. Th this is the, the mental, emotional environment that we're all swimming in. And we can't pretend that we're not affected by it. From my point of view as a psychotherapist, because um, and let, uh, let me say this piece and then please jump in because one of the greatest contributions of psychotherapy that I see is the whole idea of family systems and family systems theory. And that is that it, an you can't look at an individual and their total mental and emotional well-being and their behaviors and understand them if you don't understand the environment that they were conditioned by. And that's Usually, um, and in the field of psychotherapy, we focus on the family of origin, and that's very important. Um, but as our world of technology grows, our family is the family of America. Our family of America, our family is the school ground. It's the place we work in. Um, all of these um, conglomerations of people operate on family dynamics, and are they healthy? Or are they taking us toward greater violence? And if greater violence could take us to the possibility of a nuclear war or destroying too many of the life forms on earth that we depend on to actually eat, breathe, and survive, then we're headed toward extinction without knowing it. Yeah, I agree. That or I actually think people know it, right? They, well, yeah, I think there is a large portion of people that do know it. I do agree with you that there's a national and a global mental health crisis that is not being addressed. And I think that society, unfortunately, society and culture have kind of steered themselves in a direction that they have one agenda or two agendas. And those agendas don't necessarily involve the rest of us. Those agendas are being put into place that are for a purpose of either monetary capitalism, you know, not to go off on a conspiracy theory, but monetary no. capitalism. This is what I want, and I don't care what you want. Instead right. of looking at each other as in, we need to solve this, the climate change, for example. We need to, there's scientific evidence that shows that the climate is changing and that the global warming right. is a reality. And we noticed this with, you know, uh, the tornado season in, in the South recently was a prime That's example. Right. They had 50 tornadoes a month but to five weeks prior to the normal tor tornado season 50 of them came out of nowhere and you know you you have to stop and look at that the rising seawaters and everything but it's being ignored they're going no nah, it's not that's there. right in their enacting legislation they're enacting policies they are utilizing the media as you said in such a manner that it is weaponizing you know from that perspective it's weaponizing and trying to turn people's agenda saying that's not true that's not true that's not true that's not true but in reality we're experiencing and i think it's creating a dilemma within our own mental health arena because on our minds in our hearts we see it happening and, and you're mm -hmm. hearing it and you're seeing it on the news for example everybody can't see my hands moving around you see it on the news you hear it in the news and they're going it's not true it's not true it's not true it's not true but mm -hmm. in reality, you look around and you see that it's true. You feel right. that it's true. You see, you feel the temperatures hotter. We broke heat records. We have broken cold records. We have right. 700 inches of <clears throat> snow in California. Right. 700 right. inches of snow. It is a record that has never been before. And they're going, well, that's not global warning. That's snow. 
Well, it is an effective global warning because the, the arena is switching and it's moving, it is migrating. And it's just amazing from that perspective that it's not being recognized. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I do, it, as you can probably hear because the the, the tension in my voice, <laughs> it, it is something that, that to me, I take personally. Because yeah. I, 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 just like you, I, I've had a spiritual journey. I connect with nature. I think every living thing on this planet is here for a purpose. And they're destroying mm -hmm. those aspects of that every living thing on this planet. Because we, right. we need, as you, as you said a little bit ago, we need that to breathe, to live, to eat, to, to survive. Right. And they're ta taking those things away from us. And they're doing so in a very selfish, self-centered, narcissistic manner that doesn't right. allow us to contribute to the solution to that problem. So do you feel that there's anything that we as a society and culture can, can do to help try to steer that in a different way, to steer it, yeah. to start correcting it, or start maybe implementing something that we as an individual and as a society can maybe create the environment to, to counteract yeah. that? I mean, absolutely. That is why I wrote this book, America in Therapy. That is the real reason behind the book. And there are, you know, lots of personal experiences behind the book, but that's the real reason. And what I want to say about that is um, we are the greatest danger to ourselves. And that's what I think we're not getting. And I, I would hope that to, to look at the mass shootings, for instance, and see that it's people that are hurting um, other people, other innocent people, we are the greatest danger to ourselves if we continue to hurt the environment that we depend on. And in, on an individual level, you would say that was suicidal behavior. If someone was destroying the food that they depended on to eat, you would say they were suicidal. If they were holding a, which is the same as holding a gun to your own head, but on a national level, we're not quite recognizing it. And I think that, or let me just say this because I have so much to say that my mind starts to race. So let me slow down here a little bit. Um, <laughs> so one of the reasons why I wrote the book and one of the things that I emphasize in the book, there's two main things that I emphasize in detail in the book. And one of them is that what you just described as, you know, we see it around us. We're being told it's not really due to climate change and we can go on pumping chemicals into the environment or using terrible fertilizers in our soil or doing whatever we're doing that is hurting Mother Earth and nature and our ability to sustain ourselves as well as all other living things. One of the um, key components of that is what I call the same dynamics that are happening in abuse family, abusive families or dysfunctional families. And that is denial. No, that didn't really happen. You can't really talk about that. If you talk about that, I will deny that it's true. I will tell people that it was your fault or I will kill someone. I mean, these are real threats that people get in abusive families because the person in the power of, of the abusive of the abuser wants to maintain their power, wants to maintain their control, and whatever the perceived benefit is they get from hurting and controlling other people. And so they have to foster an atmosphere of denial and or threat and retribution for those people who call out to the truth of what's really going on. And so one of the basic premises of my book is if we could look 
at our country through the lens of the dynamics, and there are many more dynamics, that happen in abusive families, we could better understand what's happening on a mental health dysfunctional, highly dangerous level in America. And that knowledge is primary. It's essential. We have to know. We have to be educated. And so, you know, one of the original title for my book was Out of the Office and Into the World, because what I really wanted was to take everything I learned out of my office and bring it into a public conversation and into common knowledge. Um, I decided on a different uh, different uh, title, but that actually is one of the motivations of big motivations of my book. The other side, so so if we could look through the lens of an abusive family, we could understand why we're doing the things we're doing, why certain people stay in power who are behaving in abusive ways toward other people and being supported to do that by other people who have been disempowered or overempowered themselves and want to support the bully on the playground. Only the bully on the playground today has access to nuclear weapons. And so this is, this is critical. This is the bad news. Um, there's a wonderful couples therapist named Terry Reel who often starts his sessions by saying, um, after he's sort of gotten the picture of what, let's just say a couple is, um, working with and where they're struggling and what their issues are with each other, he'll often say, well, do you, there's good news and bad news. Which one do you want first? And people usually say they want the bad news first because they'd like to end on the good news. And so the bad news is that we're in danger. The bad news is that much of our uh, power positions and powerful institutions in this country are run on dynamics that mirror abuse dynamics in individual families. The good news is we know so much about how to break that cycle. And it will require a lot of us. It will require a 180 degree shift in the way we see things and in the way we behave and in the policies we enact and in the way we view ourselves and other people. But it is possible because we see it is possible in the world of psychotherapy to break the cycle of abuse. And it starts, and I'll just say this one thing and then I want you to jump back in. It starts with healing our own wounds. It starts there. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, from my perspective, I think I have an innate, and it may be because of the environment I grew up in, as well as being a, a, in law enforcement for as long as I was. I, you know, I, I was in that, that arena for to protect and serve. I loved doing my job. My sense of justice, you know, in, in obtaining justice for those that had been wronged, you know, is still within me. It's, it's really ingrained in my soul. And, and when I look at what's going on across the, the, not just the United States, but across the world, you know, it, it fires me up, I guess is a good term, because it'll, it, it, it brings me to recognize that there's an injustice. And that yes. injustice affects not only certain individuals, it, it affects us all. That's right. Those injustices affect us all. And there That's are a certain right. faction of individuals within this country and the other countries that don't see it that way. And unfortunately, they don't see it that way because media is presenting to them the narrative that they feel is going to push the ratings up. And because right. of that, they and allow, like you said, the bully in the schoolyard to get what they want and the bully in the schoolyard to kind of win. But see, my, my soul, 
wants the justice for that bully in the schoolyard to get what they deserve, as in consequences for actions. Yeah. So I think we all miss the aspect of consequences for actions. And if we don't recognize that there are consequences for actions, including our earth, Mother Earth, for example, we are seeing consequences for actions. Our actions, That's right. how we treat this environment, how we treat the, the where we live, what we drink, what we eat, you know, how we, the air we breathe, there are consequences for the actions that are being done at the moment that affect us negatively and will affect generations of right. our mankind down the road. So right. we all need to open our eyes and take a proactive approach in regard to helping to, to bring about, I think, the consequences for actions, hold people accountable for right. the decisions that they're making in regard to it. It's just like you said earlier, I, I love the analogy. It is us growing up in a dysfunctional family. You know, it, I have to be careful how I phrase this. I didn't necessarily hold my parents accountable for, for being alcoholics. I tried to get my father, but I was a kid. So it was very difficult mm -hmm. as a child to get convince your parents you need to get help, that you have right. a problem here and that you you there is something going wrong and that it is affecting me, my brother, my sister. It is difficult as a child to go in and say that, but we're adults. And as adults, we have the ability to communicate intelligently with facts. That's right. And with presentation that can say, hey, you need to stop doing what you're doing. You need to be able to do that. Or, or mankind will be extinct. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to see whether or not we can live on the moon, whether or not we can live on Mars. Why are they doing that? Because they know and realize that we are on the road to extinction here. So they're trying to find and create an environment for people to escape here and go someplace else, but that's not going to solve the problem. Right, because we're not going to escape our psychological condition. We're not going to escape the negative beliefs that we're carrying that are harming us. Um, and one of the things that, you know, I think you brought up a really important point because consequences and responsibility are a part of good psychology. They're an important part. Um, that you know it's really it really is important to be accountable for what we have done to others and and of course that's true for the person who mugs somebody on the street that's true for the person who beats their wife or children it's true for the murderer but it's also true for all of us it's true for us as a country to be accountable for what we've done to black people to native americans to women to name just a few we have a history of persecuting um, other people that we have made other. And if we don't understand from the psychological le level, and I really say this, I hope I can say this in a way that's non-judgmental, but that's really just almost factual from a psychological point of view. There are consequences for us as a country to not being responsible for the things that we have perpetrated just as there are consequences and need to be consequences for people who have perpetrated things that harm others and when i say that i really don't want to take it into the conversation of blame or hate what i want to take it into the conversation into the conversation of accountability 
because we all know, I think we all know if we've had this experience and there may be people out there who have not had this experience, but if you have had the experience of someone genuinely acknowledging something that they've done to you that was harmful, hurtful, painful, unjust, unkind, whatever, you know how reparative that is. An openness gets created when someone takes accountability and you know, at least I will say, speak for myself, I know how difficult it can be at times to be that person myself and say, you know, what I said wasn't very nice and I'm really sorry I said it in that tone of voice. Um, it, takes, it takes something to do that. It takes something to look at yourself and not keep blaming other people for our own behavior. And these are all psychological dynamics that we could bring to our country. Let's look at ourselves. Let's look at how we're affecting people. And then, so, so going back to what you said about consequences, and I, you know, I so honor your, your, your career as a, as a law enforcement officer and the work that you've done and your sensitivity to justice and accountability. And what I would add, and I would imagine you're also really familiar with this, is that many, many people who are committing the most horrendous crimes today are unhealed victims of trauma themselves. And so while there needs to be accountability and often there needs to be restraint, there needs to be incarceration because we don't have a better way of, of dealing with it. We don't know how to heal some of the deepest wounds that people still reenact in their lives toward others. I very much believe in a justice system that is still aimed at treatment, that is aimed at restoring people to their to to a, a healthy self, whether they need to stay behind bars or not. Um, because many many people, as you know, they have children; they're affecting their children. Um, or they get out of prison. Who are they when they get out of prison? Who will they become? Will they just reenact what they already did because they feel that they're already losers and hate, hated by society and there's, there's no life for them? Or will they have had a chance to heal and become constructive human beings in our world? I agree with that. And, and I think that we as society need to look at that overall. You know, that includes holding our politicians accountable if they have... If they, that's a whole nother conversation. We could talk about that for the next two hours. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you know, the, the, the actions that are being uh, uh, put into place by not only government officials, but by uh, corporations and by um, local government, as well as county government, right. as well as state right. government, as well as federal government that have consequence, consequential actions that ripple down to us as individuals that's our right. society, our <clears throat> culture, that that will have a lasting effect that will go on for many, many, many years. And those, That's right. you know, those consequences, in my opinion, have to be put into place no, no matter what. It's like having you do something wrong, you do something that affects other people negatively. There should be consequences for those actions. And it should be done in such a manner that we as an individual, we as a family, we as humanity, the, the, the family of humanity, need those in order yes. to, to, to help us to heal from the yes, inside Yes, and that, yes, yes, yes and yes. And that as the family of humanity, and I'll say the family of America right now, because I'm talking to America primarily, though really it is a global conversation for sure, that 
the family of America is helping create the situations, the conditions that are producing the school shooter, that are producing the rapists, that are producing the alcoholics and the people who are massively addicted to drugs or selling drugs to children. You know, we're, this is the family environment of America. And so we need to look through that lens that psychology makes so clear. What is the family of America giving its children? It's, it's citizens. What environment are we providing for one another? And we're responsible for that. All of us. I agree we can't with that. just, we can't just point fingers at the addict or the spousal abuser. We can't because it's, it's such a partial truth. There's a truth that those people are accountable for their behavior. Right. Um, but they, but we, we are accountable for the conditions that have set people up to live lives of despair and rage and no opportunity. We're accountable for that. I agree with that 100%. Now your, your new book um, that you're writing, it, it kind of addresses a lot of this, correct? Yes, it, it addresses, you know, as much as I could fit into it, you know, what I think is a readable amount of material, there's, you know, yeah. So I really go in depth into what abuse dynamics are in families and how they're being mirrored in so many ways, you know, on the larger level, right. what the what the dynamics are of healthy families. And again, there's no perfect healthy family, we're all fallible. But what the you know, what are the things are that we try to heal that create health and well being and, and healing from wounds in individuals. And then I talk about um, and then I talk in the second half of my book is really about um, going in more in detail into what the healing elements of good psychotherapy are. What does that look like? What do we actually do? What do we um, what do we teach people? What do we help people process? And like I said, it begins with healing our own wounds. I've seen people turn their lives around and I'm sure you have too, when they've had an opportunity to heal from the harm that was done to them. People who were ragers, who terrified their children, who don't do that anymore. Right. You know? Um, well, it, it's, it's, like yeah. I said earlier, it, it's, it's one of those things we have to open our eyes, our heart, our ears, and we listen and we see and we feel to understand, you know, what's going on around us. Because I think a majority of individuals at least lately, the majority of individuals, they they have blinders on. I, I can't show blinders yeah. because of my hands, but they have blinders yeah. on. They see one thing in front of them and they don't look at the peripheral area within them and the consequences and the ripple effects of what's going on right. at that time and what their actions were doing. Once it's recognized, then it gives you the opportunity to take the blinders off and say, oh, I see things in a different perspective now. And right. it gives me the opportunity right. to change that environment. And again, I think that, you know, I know this, this term has been around for a little bit, but it, in the last couple of years, I think it's taken more of a, uh, a wider scope of, of the term intergenerational trauma. When we start recognizing that, you know, we have yeah. brought forward with us many things from not just our own past, but generations of past that have been right. passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down with the understanding that we have the opportunity once we recognize that to change that. Right. You would just have to open our eyes, open our ears, open our heart and make a valid choice. It's all about choice. Make a choice to make that change and recognize what's there, understand what's there and how we can make a choice 
and to make a positive impact on our own environment, our home, our family, our family, humanity family, in, That's in, right. in those that we live within ourselves. So yes, I do agree with that. I think that you know the the what you're writing about, what you're going to bring about in this book, I think is a wonderful opportunity for people to take an introspect within that to allow them to maybe recognize that, open their eyes, their ears, their heart, and to and to open the possibility of what they what they can help to do to change, what they can do to contribute to that change, whether it be individually or through their own family or for humanity overall. Right. Because we're going to lose it. We're, we are in the path of just extinction, I do believe. I think that mm -hmm. you know, they don't care that there are so many, for example, so many animals. There are so many animals that have gone extinct that are never, ever coming back, and there's no reason for it. And it was mm -hmm. a direct cause to our actions. That's right. There that's, are plants right. and trees that have been destroyed. The Amazon forest. Look how much of the Amazon forest has been destroyed over corporate greed, and that's not coming back. That's right. You know, it's kind of one of those things. And they people don't understand that as consequences. The Amazon forest creates the a, a huge climate impact across the world and right because most of that a lot of that has been destroyed that just created the opportunity for mother nature to go i'm a little mad so we're going to fix it this way <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so, anyway mm -hmm. yeah. i know that you've got some other books and some other things and you you have a website and a blog and, and some things that, that yeah. people can reach out to you to so they can get some help or they can talk to you can we talk about that yeah yeah one thing i do want to just say is i am actually retired from my practice so i don't see people individually anymore but if anyone is looking for really good therapy i have great referrals to make so you can still contact me for that i'm really focused on writing and um, these two books that you can see on the screen, um, A Light in the Darkness and Into the Fire, are the first two books I wrote that really, A Light in the Darkness chronicles autobiographically um, the early years of my life until I was about, oh, in my mid-40s, I guess. And, and then when my kind of spiritual awakening occurred and the rest of the book is devoted to that and Into the Fire is also devoted to what came through for me as uh, profound information from what I call a divine source from higher consciousness really about our human condition. And I've shared that in these two books and I intend to write more, um, not the end. But one of the things that I really wanna share is that this book now that I'm writing, or I have written America in Therapy and that I'm about to have published, really came out of my spiritual journey. It's all connected. Um, and one of the main things about that that I learned came right out of, you know, that, that moment I shared about looking at the man and thinking, he just wants to be loved by God, and I want to be loved by God, and I want to be loved by people, is that part of the spiritual journey really is learning to love that I don't think there's a spiritual journey without that. I don't think there's a spiritual experience, at least not any that I've ever had or would want to have, that doesn't include an experience of incredible love. And so part of the motivation for this book that I'm writing, that I've written now, is that um, the best psychotherapy returns us to a place of loving ourselves and being better able to one love one another. And I think our psychology is a very, very critical and 
undeniable step in the evolution of all human consciousness that that we're building a foundation of real care and empathy and compassion that um that we've been looking for from God and that I believe we need to look for from one another. So my books are actually very related, even though they seem to be on very different topics. And where can they find you? Uh, w, sorry, I'm having an allergic reaction. My eyes are watering. Um, you can find me on www.phyllislevitt.com. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter. Um, I started, I have a TikTok channel, but I haven't done it yet. And, um, and if you go to my website, you can sign in with your email address, and then I will let you know as soon as my book is available. Ooh. We're, Thank we're, you. We're, <laughs> Thank you. I'm not crying, but something has got, got in my eye. <laughs> um, you have tears, tears for humanity. <laughs> I, I do have that too. Well, we'll call that it that. Too. Um, I'll make sure that everybody's got a link to that in the show notes. For those of you that are uh, listening to this, not watching it, there'll be a link in the show notes to uh, your website and how they can find your books and so forth. And Thank you. I know that you've got a blog on there and you've got uh, as well and uh, some amazing articles and so forth. So they help educate people and kind of motivate them and inspire them and so forth. So I appreciate that as well. Um, thank, uh, you. Those, thank you very much for sharing your journey with us and everything that you bring thank to you. the world. Um, this is one more thing before you go. And although I think you may have just said it, do you have any words of wisdom before we leave? Oh boy. <laughs> I guess, um, there'd be two things that I'd say really quickly off the bat. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's um, okay. one of them would be trust yourself. If you feel called to serve in any way, no matter how small you think it is, even if it's just smiling at somebody who looks down, do it. We need each other. And the other thing I would say is if you're suffering and you really have unresolved pain in your life, find somewhere to get some help. <laughs> I'm so amazing sorry. words of wisdom. That's okay. Yeah. That's amazing <laughs> words of wisdom. So we'll leave Thank it you. with that so we can take care of your eyes. Um, Phyllis, yeah. thank you very much for guys say coming on the show. I really thank appreciate you. Uh, what you bring to the thank world. You. And uh, I look forward to uh, maybe having another conversation down the road. We could probably talk for another hour. I would love that. I would love it. I would love it. Thank so, you. And you have been an amazing host. Well, I appreciate that as well. And for all of you out there listening, please uh, follow and subscribe. As they always say, you can find us on every platform, including YouTube. Uh, your favorite listening platform, including YouTube. Thank you very much for joining us on One More Thing Before You Go. And One More Thing Before You Go, from my perspective, have a great day, have a great week, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform.